Well, good evening, everybody. So good to see you. I've enjoyed being with so many of you at the meals and at the uh, seminar this morning. It's just a, it's an energized and energizing environment to be in for an old guy like me. Uh, just really thank you for letting me join in with you. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you've had a, have a, had a good day, and I think we'll have some good days together as we go forward. Well, let's turn to the Word, and we're looking in Luke chapter 10. And if you'll turn there in your Bibles, remember we looked at the first two verses, and we learned that the Christian mission is every Christian's mission. So every single person who's come to know Christ as Savior is called into his ministry. We saw how sometimes the Western affluence leading to paid occupational ministry has confused us at times, and we think that entering the ministry is to get on a staff somewhere, but it's for everybody. It's to be done together, and it's to be done everywhere. So we saw what our calling is. When we come to know him, he says, come, follow me, and I will make you something. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you ministers. So it's good to know who we are. We're the disciples of Jesus who are called to ministry. We've seen that in chapter 10, he's taking his people on on-the-job training, which is the best training you can have. And, you know, those of us who went to Bible college or seminary or some other lay institute to get ready for ministry, we, when we got into ministry, we found out, no, you really learn ministry when you're doing ministry. And that's what we're all doing. We're all learning. I'm still learning. I've, I've learned a ton these past two years since I retired from Second Presbyterian Memphis. I did church consulting for a while, learned a ton. I got involved with other churches and saw what was going on in their churches. And, and now being an interim pastor, I'm still learning. We're all learning ministry as we're in ministry. And Jesus does that with his disciples. We've seen that there are four things we want to examine in this important text in Luke 10. We want to see the, the calling to ministry, which we studied last night. Today we want to look at some of the dangers of ministry that he talks about. And then we want to look at what the ministry is, what is the essence of the ministry, uh, as we get to, to verse 9. And uh, then we'll close out by looking at the, the joy of the ministry, which is inexplicably glorious, uh, as we come to that on Thursday evening. Uh, a few of you know I've been polling you a little bit, asking you this question, what's the most difficult thing you face in youth ministry? And I've gotten some answers that to you folks would be entirely predictable because you all would be facing the same thing, but you have the challenge of uh, church staff that doesn't really understand what you do and how important it is and doesn't often treat you as equal colleagues in ministry with the pastoral staff. That's a challenge. You've got the students themselves who sometimes are knuckleheads. You know, uh, we, when you teach junior highs, they're all, they're all there for seven minutes. You got them. Senior highs look at you like, I dare you to entertain me or interest me, you know. But the wonderful thing about senior highs, by the way, this is a side road. I won't charge anything extra. Uh, the, the great thing about se teaching senior highs is that they're so doggone honest. They don't image manage. I mean, you're talking to adults, and they're looking right at you like they're really interested, but they're thinking about, you know, the next date they're going to have or the, the golf grip that they need to adjust, you know, in their game tomorrow. But they're looking at you like they're perfectly interested. Teenagers don't do that. They look at the floor, and they look out the window, 
and they close their eyes, just daring you to give them anything interesting. And it's a wonderful way to learn to communicate the gospel because you get, you get feedback right away from these folks. But you have kids who sometimes won't open their lives to you, and that can be very frustrating. And then, of course, the parents who have unreasonable expectations. They act as though this kid is your fault. <laughs> Go figure. You've been rearing this kid since they were an infant. You're blaming me. But that's the way parents are. They get all nerved up in the teenage years. They know they're out the door in just a few years to college, and they're really nervous about everything going right. And you have all these expectations on you. And then parents who want you to do their job for them uh, don't often cooperate. Uh, you know, I have five kids. Everybody knew in our family, you're going to youth group. You kidding me? You're going to youth group. And it was just a no-brainer. And with five kids, that would be, let's see, five times, 35 teenage years Allison and I parented. We had two complaints. And so each time we had a complaint about having to go to youth group, we just said, hey, have you lost your mind? Do you think I've lost my mind? You're a teenager. And there are people over there at the church who are a little older than you are, and they want to help you walk with Jesus. <laughs> and you think, I'm going to let you upset yourself from that. You've got to be crazy. Uh, so there were only two times they ever tried it. And they knew that it was, I would just take it as a perfect joke. They had to be kidding. Very few parents do that, I found out. So I teach that now. You know, we have a, if we're going to have a youth ministry, your kids are going to be in it. And as I mentioned to our group this morning, at Second Presbyterian Church, you couldn't be an elder on the session unless your kids were regularly involved in the youth group if you had them that age. It's just a no-brainer. But a lot of parents don't look at it that way. And you're dealing with real difficulties. I don't know if anybody warned you about what you'd be getting into with youth ministry, but I want to tell you something about Jesus. He really warned his disciples. Now, they didn't always hear him and understand him, but that's not his fault. He gave them a clear picture of the price they were going to be paying, of the cost of the ministry from, from the moment they began. So let's look now, beginning with verse 3, we'll read all, way, all the way to verse 8. And I want you to notice three things about this text in the few moments that we have together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that you will speak to us, for we are your servants, we are your children, we love you. We want to hear your voice. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Luke 10, verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a house and they receive you, eat what is set before you. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field as the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's notice three things. First of all, verse 3, he says go. In the Hebrew, it's just go. It doesn't say go your way. And I, I like just go because he's teaching us this. 
If you're in Jesus Christ, you've received him as Savior, you're going to go. That means you're going to leave familiar environs, things that are comfortable and convenient. You're going to leave behind, shall we say, home. You know that even if you want to get married, a father, a, a husband, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one. If you're following Jesus Christ, you will leave your comfortable environment and you will go to places where Jesus is going to take you in order to carry out his ministry. All you have to do is check the Bible. Abraham is seven years older than I am right now, 75 years old, and he's told to leave the place of the Chaldees, the place where he grew up, the place where he had his wealth and his fame, and everybody knew who he was. I want you up, Abram. I want you to go to a place you've never seen before, and I'll provide for you there. And Abram gets up at 75 years of age and goes. You have the Apostle Paul. And you remember that after he was converted, he went back to the familiar environs after he had studied the Old Testament out in the wilderness for about 11 years, maybe as many as 14. He then is back in Tarsus, his hometown. When Barnabas comes up from Antioch to recruit him to be the main preacher in the Antiochian church, which was a very pluralistic uh, church, many different backgrounds, Paul had the sophistication to reach the different cultures, and Barnabas knew it. He went and got him and recruited him. And then for the rest of Paul's life, he never had, as far as we know, an opportunity even to take a sabbatical in Tarsus. Never went back home. He was on his first missionary journey to Cyprus and then to other parts in what we call Turkey today. His second missionary took him through Asia Minor, third missionary tour, and then, of course, he ends up in household arrest in Rome, and then we don't know exactly what happened right after that, but soon after that, he, he's put to death in Rome. Go. Get up and go. Spurgeon put it this way, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor of the 19th century into the 20th. Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So when you come to him, your location is his business. You're looking to put your life in his hands and to do his bidding and to advance his kingdom. And you want him to determine where that's going to be. Now, obviously, that will be through many inferences you'll draw. You'll have to make decisions. But the way in which you frame it up is to know that you're to go. So he just thrust them out. I'm sure they didn't feel very comfortable with this, going two by two into Samaria, hated Samaria, hostile territory, going knocking door to door, two by two, to announce the kingdom and to heal the sick. But he says, go, get up and go. And so normally in ministry, when you're serving him with zeal, you'll find out you're always on the cutting edge. It's not just when you're 25 or 35. You always feel like you're cutting new territory. He's always pushing you out into places where you might not have gone if it hadn't been because it was him. And the reason you go is because of the song we just sang. It's a wonderful song. Is he worthy?
as worthy as he is, you expect to put your life on the line. Go. When you go, you may end up somewhere that doesn't feel so comfortable to you. You may not even, down deep inside, like it very much. Here's what you learn from the scriptures, from watching the Apostle Paul and the others who work cross-culturally. Wherever you go, it is your obligation to love those people and to become like them and to learn. It, it doesn't really work for you to say, oh, I love them, I just don't like them. It doesn't work. Because you know what I found out? You can learn to like people. You know how I found that out? My wife learned to like me. That was amazing. She learned it. And you can learn to like people. If you come to Memphis, you become a Grizzlies fan. Look, I love the Celtics. Too bad. I'm now a Grizzlies fan because I'm a Memphian. And I'm not going to be cheering for a team that my people aren't cheering for. I'm going to cheer for their team. I'm going to learn to love their team, learn the players. I'm a University of Memphis Tigers fan. I graduated from University of Virginia, but I'm a Memphis fan. I'm a city of Memphis fan. If you're in some cities, they're very easy to brag on. If you're from Memphis, it's a cultivated, <laughs> a cultivated trait. And after having cultivated, I really do love Memphis. I love Memphis because of her problems. I love her because of her tensions. And I love her because of her poverty. And I love her because of her need. I love her because she's mine. So you go. And you love those people and you adapt to them and you enter into their life. You're a missionary or an imposter. And people like J. Hudson Taylor and many other famous missionaries show you what it's like to go to China. You become a Chinaman. His fellow missionaries made fun of him because he dressed like a Chinaman. He looked like a Chinaman. And they said, what are you, you're, you're pretending. We're Englishmen. No, I'm a Chinaman. I love these people. That's what it means to go. Jesus says you're in Samaria. Go. So when you come to him, you come because as was cited earlier tonight, and Scotty Smith said it, he, he doesn't want to just use you. He wants to be with you. So you come. Enjoy him. Delight yourself in him. Is he worthy? Oh, is he ever? I know him. I spend time with him. We're friends. And then you go in his mission. That's the rhythm. So the first thing is, the danger of ministry is you, you really cut the cord between you and some special place. You can visit it. You can be nostalgic. You can recount the wonderful things that God did in that place. But you go. You're on the move. You're a pilgrim. That's the reason the Puritans called themselves often pilgrims. Not because they came to America. They were pilgrims because they were on a journey to the new heavens and the new earth. And they were moving. So are we. Now secondly, he tells you what the environment's going to be like. He says, I go, I'm sending you out like lambs among or amidst wolves. Last time I checked, Wolves eat lambs. I'm sending you out among your predators. 
That's what Jesus is telling them. This is our ministry. It's my ministry. I'm sending you out, and I'm sending you out at the risk of your own life. And you, you have to ask the question, is he worthy of this? And the answer is yes. And that's the reason that we never hesitate to say, this ministry may cost you your life, and if you don't sense that, you, you haven't grasped what he's done for you, nor what he's calling you to do. If anyone would come after me, said Jesus, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You've got to take the life, the, the Via Dolorosa. You've got to take the way of sorrow. You've got to take the way of the cross yourself. Otherwise, you couldn't possibly follow me because that's the path I'm on. And if you're with me, you're with someone who's on the Via Dolorosa in this life. So I'm sending you out on the Via Dolorosa. I'm sending you out on the way of the cross. I'm sending you out where you could get killed. Now, when you think about maybe not the 72 here, but you think about the 12 minus Judas, do you realize what happened to them? Now, we don't, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but we have some interesting extra-biblical historical records that give us hints about what happens to the apostles. Some of it fairly reliable extra-biblical history. Some of you would know this because at First Presbyterian Augusta, look at Mountain Presbyterian, Second Presbyterian Memphis, you've got what we call the shields of the apostles on your wall in the sanctuary. I don't know if you've seen them. They're kind of like coats of arms for each of the apostles. Let me tell you about them. Uh, Paul's is famous, has an open Bible with a sword over it. And, of course, this is the sword of the Spirit, but here's the sword that took his head off because he was faithful to this sword of the Spirit. That's on the Apostle Paul's shield. If you look at Peter's shield, you'll see an upside-down cross because fairly reliable history tells us that Peter was crucified and he refused to be crucified right side up like his Savior. He said, I'm not worthy of it. And he was crucified upside down. Philip has a slender little cross because we believe he was crucified on a slender cross. Bartholomew has three flaying knives because uh, fairly re uh, reliable history uh, teaches us that he was flayed and then crucified. Thomas, you'll know, of course, has three stones on his shield because he was the apostle to India and we believe that he was stoned to death for his testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I could go on through all of them, all of them, except John, who died in exile. He was exiled, but he died of old age on the Isle of Patmos. All the rest of them died violent deaths. We are members of the apostolic church. And this is the majority report for Christians that when you follow Christ and testify to him, you will be violently opposed. Living in a country like ours, with the legacy that we have, we live in this little window of time and a very protective geography in that time where it appears as though to be a Christian really sets you up to be successful in anything that you do because people think you're reliable and honest, hardworking, and so they want to hire you and they pay you more and put you in charge. And so to be a Christian is really a, a big plus for you. 
That's the minority report in the General Assembly of the church over 2,000 years. The majority report is we're being killed every day. And Paul says in Romans 8, when, when you're persecuted and even your blood is shed, don't think that God has abandoned you. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, he says. And, he, and his deepest argument is the one that's airbrushed out of the prayer book during the funeral uh, where he says, shall anything separate us from the love of God? He says, no, because we are, we are sheep fattened for the slaughter. Doesn't go very well in a funeral. But here's his point. When you're being slaughtered, you're actually experiencing the blessing of God because this is what his people do. We go on retreats to get fattened up so we can go out there and get beat up. Because that's what Jesus did. So Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out among your predators. Is he worthy? Yes. In fact, this is the key way that I prove that he's worthy. Some of you may have heard Dr. Joseph Zahn, T-S-O-N. He was a pastor in Romania during the very difficult time for Christians in the, the pre-Berlin Wall coming down, you know, during the Soviet era in Romania, under the rule of Ceausescu, if you remember the name. He was arrested on several occasions. He was beaten on several occasions. He was imprisoned, threatened. He was what I would call a living martyr. Here's what he said. He said there are actually two crosses. There's the cross of Jesus Christ for you. And there's your cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ in you that you take up. And his famous line was this. He said, there will be no salvation in the world until there's a cross again in the church. Because, brothers and sisters, this is how the gospel is promulgated around the world. It's through the blood of our brothers and sisters. That's the reason the early fathers said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the word martyr just means witness. So the blood of witnesses is always the seed that's planted in the soil that brings forth the church around the world. And so, of course, how can I, even though I have sentiments toward you, you remind me a lot of my children, some of you, my grandchildren are young enough, I, I have great sympathy for you, but what could keep me from bidding you to come and lay down your life for the Lord Jesus Christ because that's exactly what the calling is. So I bid you tonight to give your life completely for him. Is he worthy? He's worthy. So we're called to go and give ourselves. Well, in our day, we might be willing to lay our life down, but we don't want anybody to take our money. <laughs> you know, so I'll give my life for you, but I don't want to I don't want to be hurt financially. Look at what Jesus says thirdly. Not only you go and lay down your life, but don't worry about what you're going to get. In fact, Jesus is saying to them, what you receive is what you need. So I don't want you all packing big suitcases. I don't want you to be saving up forever. I don't want you to be thinking about how you're going to make all the provisions you need for ministry. Go. Give me your life. 
and you'll go into a house and you'll say shalom. If they say shalom back to you and give you your amount of peace, then enter in and enjoy the hospitality. Someone will feed you. Don't look for another house that's better than that one. Don't go shopping for which host and hostess you want. Take the one that's given to you. I'll provide for you. I learned this in a very dramatic way. Uh, early on, my young family, I think my youngest maybe was too young to go on this trip. Yeah, she was. So we took four out of our five children to Haiti on a week-long missions trip in the middle of the summer. <laughs> Hot. <laughs> Hot in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And so we packed our bags and got ready to go. We went through the Atlanta airport or went to the Atlanta airport, and actually that was our origin, our place of origin, so we were flying out of Atlanta. I don't know what, what, how this happened. I know that when I was at the desk, and she said, you know, where are you going? I said, Port-au-Prince. She thought I said, Bonn, West Germany. Go figure. Our family goes to Port-au-Prince. All of our bags go to Bonn, West Germany. All of them. We land in Haiti. I have a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, 11-year-old. I don't know how old they were, but they're about that age. I have no bags, no toothbrush, no underwear, nothing for a week in beautiful Haiti in the month of June. Well, I discovered something. You don't need all that stuff. <laughs> it's amazing. You just show up and God does stuff and you didn't need all that stuff. You know, you actually can borrow underwear. <laughs> you, could, <laughs> you could brush your teeth with all kinds of things. You know, you could. So, and furthermore, when you get back, I got back to my home, and there in the front porch were all of our bags. And it's so pleasant to come back from dirty Haiti, and you open your bags, everything's fresh and clean. You just put it back up in the shelf right where you got something to eat. Just trust him. I'm not saying be unwise. I'm not saying don't pay your bills. I'm not saying don't be careful with your financial planning. Be wise. But don't be afraid. Trust him. And let him provide for you. And you'll be amazed through your years what he does for you. I have no idea. I really don't. How my kids got through college financially. I don't know how that happened. It just went by so fast. I know I refinanced my house about five times, but I, I don't know other than that how it all happened. But I know it did. And I, I know I've, I've served, you know, Presbyterian churches that are generous and, and, you know, they're largely professional people, so we have much more money than most people in the world have. I understand that, but still. You know, Vanderbilt, what, is 60000 now? I mean, it's an expensive place to be. Would you just trust him? Would you go and go at the risk of your own life and everything you deeply value and go trusting him for the provision? I'll close with this. Um, right after I retired, I promised um, that I would go do uh, some teaching in Chiang Mai, Thailand for some Chinese young adults probably early to mid-20s, they had just finished university, who were going to go all over the world. 
their world. Uh, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan hated Japan, uh, being hated by uh, Taiwan. Nepal, I mean, 16, 17 countries, some of which are very dangerous places to go for Christians. And furthermore, these young men and women are Chinese, which means they're probably only children. And in China, you don't have social security. Well, you don't have it the way we do. Your social security is your one child who is obligated to take care of you. And in most cases, if your child goes to university, he may be the first one ever in his family who went to university. And that was the case with many of the young people, about the same size group that's in this room right now. And they were coming from families that were relatively poor, and they had been the first university graduates. And their mom and dad were looking to them to provide for them. And now they had this opportunity to get a decent wage. And every one of them was giving that up. Taking less than half the pay they would have had in the professional world. And for most of them, with severe disappointment from their parents. That last night, we had a special service. It was a it was a communion service, and in their tradition, they, first of all, washed each other's feet, and then they confessed their sins to one another in a very systematic way. And then I was in the third group. I was to serve communion, and by the time they get to me, just tears streaming down all their faces. And I can tell you, the tears were not there in their face nor mine because of the sacrifices they were making. The tears were tears of unspeakable joy in knowing him and how worthy he is and having been given the insight to walk with him. Why did Paul himself say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake? Because the sufferings that he experienced advanced the kingdom in the hearts of the people he loved. And the sufferings that he experienced, as he explains in Philippians 3, drew him intimately close to the Lord Jesus himself. Because Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. It is in entering into the life of ministry, serious ministry, whether paid or not, entering into the life of ministry, you get him. Because that's where he is. He's ministering to a lost and dying world that cost him his life. And he bids us come. Oh, can you hear him bidding you come even tonight? I pray during these, these hours that we have this week of refreshment and renewal and retreat, just listening for him. Let him speak to you. Let him draw you in so that you're eager to take up the cross that could kill you because it's the way of life and you know it. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are worthy for you shed your blood on our behalf.
you took up your cross for us. We are profoundly grateful. We hardly know what to say or what to do, but we pray that you'll give us wisdom to take up our cross, whatever it is, what it means for us, to enter into ministry, to stay in ministry all of our lives, whether occupationally or not, makes no difference to you nor to us. We want to be your ministers. We want to go. We want to take up our cross. We want to eat what you feed us with joy and satisfaction. And so we make our prayer, Lord Jesus, in your powerful name. Amen.